Latter-day Saints are not interested in talking about, typically, all the things that Christians are more interested in. They don't really want to talk about the nature of deity. It's not that interesting to them. Where the real gold mine is, is talking about the heaviness, the burden of expectation of a worthiness, a perfectionistic culture. That So Mormons don't know, am, am I doing enough? Well, I think it's sometimes it's nervous if the knock comes on our door and we see that there's maybe some Mormon missionaries standing out there and it's like, I don't know what to say or I forgot the lines I'm supposed to memorize. And so I've heard of stories where sometimes people act like they're not home and they just don't want to have that conversation. Other people are like itching and they're trying to have these conversations. You might be somewhere there or the other or in between. But hopefully in the conversation today, we want to go over some very practical tips to help you have more confidence to share Christ with your LDS neighbor, friend, or the missionaries that show up at your door, that the next time that that opportunity presents itself, you will not shy away, but will be excited to confidently engage that LDS member with biblical truth. Now, I've done a lot of shows on Mormonism on this channel before as the ministry that I have going out to Utah a few different times a year, training students to have these conversations. And a lot of these shows, we've talked about doctrinal issues and understanding the difference between their views of grace and views of salvation and what are the main differences and, and how to answer their questions and kind of these big theological issues. I think one thing that's probably going to be a little bit different about the show today is coming from a chapter that my guest wrote on understanding LDS culture and how that should also influence our engagement with them. And so kind of a unique perspective, I think a helpful perspective, uh, as well as some practical insights to help us better engage. And so that's going to be kind of a unique aspect of today's conversation, as well as kind of hopefully answering some of your questions. If you have those, you can put those in the live chat. So if that sounds interesting, stick with us in this conversation. Again, my Daniel jumping in, my name is Ryan Pauly, and this is a show, Think Well, training you to think well about the Christian faith and the culture so you can engage the culture well, this time thinking well about the Mormon faith to engage those missionaries that show up at your door. And my guest today is Dr. Ross Anderson. Uh, he is a former Mormon and now evangelical Christian. He holds a Master of Divinity degree as well as a Doctor of Ministry in uh, Missiology and Missions and is a teaching pastor at Alpine Church in Utah. So Dr. Ross Anderson, thank you so much for joining me for this conversation. Hey Ryan, glad to talk to you, man. Let's have a great conversation today. Absolutely. I'm excited for this because uh, just as we were talking about it, I found some really cool insights in your chapter that really kind of challenged me as well as I think shed light on how uh, I've heard other people kind of or how people have asked me questions of what should I do with this and how do I kind of break through some of these different kind of barriers. And I think that your chapter kind of helps in this. So I want to kind of discuss that and some theological stuff as well. But I kind of want to start with your story. Um, so I think you might be my first guest to discuss Mormonism that grew up LDS. And so uh, can you kind of talk about your story a little bit and kind of where you came from and where you're at today? Yeah, thanks for invi inviting me to, to share about that. So I was uh, born in, actually in Salt Lake City, Utah. And, but I moved out, my parents were on the, on the move. So we moved, uh, my dad was in grad school and looking for postdoctoral work. And, and so I, we didn't, I didn't live in Salt Lake. I didn't grow up in Utah. I grew up in Southern California in the Los Angeles area. And, um, you know, back in the day, so my whole family was Mormon. I'm one of 10 kids. I joke, my parents were, were working hard to depopulate the preexistence. <laughs> um, and so we were, uh, we were really Mormonism for us was our, our belief system is our culture. It's our whole way of life. We were, uh, cocooned, really isolated from most other people, went to normal school, you know, like more, most Mormons do, but, um, but really our whole life revolved around the church. The church was our social center. It was everything else that we, that we needed, that we possibly needed. So when I was in high school, my older brothers had gone on their missions uh, to serve the mission for the Mormon church. You, you know, you've seen these guys on the bicycles or, or whatever and um, in their suit and tie. And my older brothers had gone on their mission to do that in places that, uh, let's say, you wouldn't go on vacation. <laughs> they were not, not attractive places. You know, it wasn't like, uh, oh, let's go to Paris or something. You right. know, uh, they went to rural Mexico and, and to the uh, Latin American world where it was hard. Yeah. Life was hard. Um, poverty was there. And so, so I'm looking at the, the 
cost that my older brothers paid. Uh, and I began to question, hey, do I own this enough to go to go pay that price? Do I really own this stuff, this enough, this message? Does it really matter to me enough for me to go um, and make that sacrifice? And um, that was that was lurking around in the back of my mind. At the time, you know, it, there's a lot of cultural pressure to perform a mission, to go out, you know, to go out right. and you know, you're not going to let your family down or or the, all the people who are in your world would think less of you. But that was a back in the back of my mind. And around that time, I started uh, dating a girl who was not a Mormon. She was at some some level of Christian. She was not, you know, she was young. She wasn't well-trained. Her parents were not, her family was not Christian. She was going to a church. And um, she at least knew enough to call into question my religious identity. Now, mm-hmm. see, she wasn't a, she wasn't a, you know, on fire Christian or she wouldn't have been dating me. <laughs> right. That was like a, a, a non sequitur there. But no, she knew enough. And so I had her seeing the Mormon missionaries and she had some answers for them. She raised some more questions. Mm. And she had me exposed me to literature that was had been prepared about Mormonism by critics of Mormonism. It's typically in the past been called anti Mormon literature right. uh, by the Mormons. That's a derogatory, pejorative term. But um, she had me reading, quote, anti Mormon literature. And um, there, it was mostly about the history of Mormonism that's been swept under the rug. And so that raised questions I, that I couldn't answer and things that I didn't was not aware of. So I spent a year really trying to sort it all out and, and really trying to listen to voices. And I wanted to get away. I wish I could have got away somewhere and just and cleared my head and made a decision. But eventually I, I realized, look, I can't. I had a, what you call an intellectual deconversion. So I came to the place, I can't believe this. I don't believe this anymore. I'm not going to participate in it anymore. And then it took the Holy Spirit another two and a half years or so to, for, uh, to generate a spiritual conversion of new birth in me um, when I really, I guess God in the meantime was, was like deconstructing this veneer of exterior religious self-righteousness that had to fall away before I could really understand and appreciate the gospel. So in my yeah. college, it's all happened when I was in my college years, came to faith in Christ uh, in, in a college, uh, local college, and then went off to school to another uh, university in California, um, was discipled by some campus ministries there, uh, met, met my wife, and uh, as, as part of our courtship, as we began to pursue what ministry would look like. And um, so then I went off to uh, a theological education and um, came back to Utah when I was done there, came back to Utah to plant a church. I've been here ever since. Wow. So the girl that you were dating uh, that kind of led you out of the LDS faith did not eventually become your wife. Your wife is someone different. Yeah, that's right. Because okay. there were some there were some things in our relationship that weren't right. Okay. And as, as soon as I, the very, that like, I, I remember the night that I that I trusted my life and my eternity in the hands of Jesus, and um, within a within a few days, the Holy Spirit brought under conviction all of those areas in our relationship that weren't right. So I went to have a, a chat with her about that, and and she uh, didn't want to listen. So okay. that was the end of it. Yeah. Interesting. Now you said she wasn't on fire for Jesus or else she wouldn't have been dating you. I'm curious, what was it like from, from your perspective? Was, it, were you, was your family, was there pushback the fact that you were dating uh, an evangelical Christian and not someone else who was Mormon? They, there was no pushback that I remember. I don't know what they're talking about behind my back. Yeah. Um, you know, I guess they figured I have to get uh, my wild oats out before I go on my mission. It was still in the mission mode. And I got, they figured, oh, he's just going to mess around. And I was about to graduate from high school at that time. They figured, oh, he'll graduate and move on. You know, the, how those high school uh, romances work. That, right. I think that's what, they, what they're thinking. Okay. Now you, you talked about kind of this cultural pressure and we'll get to there in a little bit as well, um, to go on the mission. Um, I, so it sounds like you chose not to go on the mission. What, what was that like, um, as far as that pressure, making that decision not to go? Yeah, it, that, you're right. I ended up not going. Um, well, the, the whole thing was about, about stepping back from the church and about not participating anymore, being active, all that, not going on the mission, all that's really rolled up into one thing. 
because it's some it's some level of repudiation of this uh, claim these of being the restored gospel and all the rest. Now my parents were kind, you know they didn't they figured I guess they figured I was on this maybe I needed to wind my way back around and I would find my way home you know before too long. I didn't go nuts. I didn't I didn't become a drug addict or something like that. That that's what they're taught. You know, if you leave mm-hmm. the church, you're gonna your your life's gonna fall apart. Um, and so I think they were patient. They figured, ah, eh, you know, he'll he'll work it out and he'll be back. Yeah. And so really, the more the more um, tension and conversation happened in our relationship when I uh, announced to my parents that I was going to go to theological seminary and pursue a uh, calling as a pastor. Hmm. So that they, then they realized, oh, I guess he's not. You know, he's not coming back. back. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Now, oh, interesting. So, so in that, I, I the, what popped into my mind, and maybe there's no way to actually get a number on this, but it made me wonder how many missionaries are showing up at our houses, knocking on our doors that are maybe in a similar situation where they have doubts, they have questions. Maybe they're not that bought in, but because of cultural pressure, they go anyways. And kind of the opportunity that that may present us as Christians, whereas, you know, maybe on the outside, they present themselves as very solid, believing, you know, active Mormons, but on the inside, maybe are kind of in a similar position as you, but went because of that cultural pressure. I don't know if we can quantify how many that is, but there's got to be that that group. Yeah. Yeah, there are, there ha- always has been that group. I think that group that that dynamic might be changing a little bit because it there's there's a decreasing stigma associated with leaving the LDS church hmm. for young people. And there's a decreasing stigma associated with not serving a mission and they're trying to they're trying to find ways to get guys who don't or young men women men and women who aren't really qualified for the whole deal to find ways for them to serve like a service mission. There's a thing called a service mission that uh, it's not a proselytizing mission, but it still is the two year thing. Now, you know, I, 10 years ago, um, a friend of mine is a pastor in, um, in Provo, which is the heartland, the cultural heartland of Mormonism right. more so than Salt Lake city. Yeah. Um, so he's serving in Provo and he said he, and he would go into the schools. He's also a, um, a, a, a volunteer football coach and so forth. He'd go into the schools and we had opportunity to talk about, you know, today is uh, explain my vocation day at school and talk about being a pastor. He, uh, he would ask the question, how many of you are going on a mission? These are, these are 17, 18 year old high school students. How many of you are planning to go on a mission? And it used to be 10 years ago or 15 years ago, every hand in the room goes up. But this is Provo, Utah, the heartland. And now he says, you know, that it's just mattering if fans go up. Interesting. And so so there's less of a sense of this is identifying my my place in the social network that I'm part of. This is a if I don't go on a mission, it's gonna reflect negatively on my family, on my parents. Like right. what what went wrong, you know? Or and, and I'm not gonna have many opportunities in the in a tight Mormon culture. Uh, to find a love interest because the girls are going to go, wait, no, I'm going to marry a return missionary. Right. Um, so all those factors, but those factors have decreased. There's still guys that come to the door who are going to be in that boat um, because there's family and whatever. And um, there's still guys out there who are sorting it out. And a lot wow. of times they go on their mission in order to sort it out. Hmm. They think, well, I'm going to go and then th- this will help me. This will it's like boot camp in the military. You know, you send a kid who's having trouble with authority, you send him into the military and he gets his things, authority things squared away. And that's the way some LDS kids approach a mission. Yeah. But I think that the fascinating thing with that and, and the opportunity that we as Christians have is that if, if it's not a boot camp where you send kids off to, to have this isolated training on their own is that they're sending kids off to have conversations with non-believers, non-Mormons, and and possibly even, you know, Protestant evangelical Christians. And so the opportunity then that we have to kind of come alongside, build that relationship and speak into their questioning phase uh, is is so huge. And so maybe if I can kind of jump ahead, because one of the things that you, you mentioned yeah. in your chapter uh, that I thought was so fascinating, and so I'm going to skip to that section, is um, you talk about that well, actually, this is kind of part of the next question, but I'll, I'll kind of I'll jump to the end, and then we can kind of backtrack. But you 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 discuss Mormonism as a cultural identity, 
and, and you talk about these seven different ways in which uh, they're typical aspects of the Mormon culture. But the last one is that, that they're very, very tight knit community. It's this all encompassing all around, which sometimes does create that pressure. But you make a comment here at the very end where you say, this is, um, uh, let's see here, where does it start? He says, by the way, one of the most common ways Latter-day Saints interact with non-Mormons is on their missions. This is often the only substantial interaction more, interaction Mormons will have with evangelical Christians. How you treat them will either reinforce or break down their stereotypes. And so, you know, I think that is such an important thing to recognize is because of that tight-knit community, this might be the only interaction they have. And they're going to have in that time of questioning two years of possibly interacting with you or other Christians. And we have such a huge role that we can play in that formation. Um, so I think there's an aspect that attaches somewhere else in a moment, but um, is there anything kind of else you want to add to that of just kind of that the impact and opportunity that we have there? Yeah, that's a, it's a great point really for you to bring out. I'm glad you brought that out because again, we look at these Mormon missionaries. We think that there's some kind of little robots or, or they're, they're fully invested, whatever. They're all over the place in their own life journey. I mean, what do you really know about life when you're 18, 19 years old, right? Yeah. They've inherited this whole thing, and they're trying to sort it out for themselves. Now, it is, there's a boot camp element to their, to their mission, and that's explained in the third chapter of our book written by, uh, Matt, by uh, Matt Wilder. He's explaining the mission lifestyle, the mission, what the pressure they have on their mission. They are very, it's very rigid. And so they don't, they're not going to talk very openly to you because they have a, somebody sitting next to them who's holding them accountable. Right. So our, our, our point is like we can change their stereotype. Then when they get home and they're free, they have some freedom. Maybe they've heard something. Maybe, they, maybe something we've said is like the pebble in the shoe. Maybe something they have said has broke down their stereotype. And then they say, oh, I have freedom to explore. What, what, was, the, what was that guy talking about? And you know, I wonder. Yeah. And they'll maybe recognize it when they hear it again. Yeah. And that's the second part that I want to get to that you say later on in the chapter is that um, you say here, uh, there's kind of because of that cultural pressure, when the wheels kind of start to come off, they are not likely to turn to other Latter-day Saints for encouragement. To do so would reveal their weakness and expose them to disrespect or gossip and gossip. However, they often turn to trusted Christian friends who offer unconditional acceptance. Because LDS missionaries work in pairs, this kind of vulnerability sorry, is unlikely, at least while on their mission. And so I think that's fascinating because I've, I've kind of heard Christians talk about, well, like they're just both so committed. They both made up their mind. And it made me wonder reading this is how often do they say all these things because they're in the presence of someone? So the example I gave right. to my wife as I was right. reading this was like, imagine if my wife and I are, are, a, are a pair and I know that she's like super hardcore committed LDS I'm definitely not going to express any doubts to the Christian who I'm talking to on my mission because my my partner is going to go could say, hey, you know, Ryan was expressing some doubts today and he was saying he is not sure if this is true. And then now I get in trouble. And I've heard some Christians, um, if I'm remembering correctly, a friend of mine was having a conversation with Mormon missionaries. One expressed some serious questions and doubts. And the next time they came over, that missionary had been shipped somewhere else. And so it's yeah. like, is what's going on there? So it's is it possible that they're putting forward this front, like they're super committed, not questioning anything to not tip off their partner. But then, yeah, after their mission, yeah. they may reach out to you or other Christians because of this influence that we can have. Yeah, absolutely. That's so true. Kind of seeing behind the nature of that, their mission experience and what they're going through, what it's like, you realize that it's a high accountable uh, environment for them. And so, yeah, they, I want to take that into account. And yeah. that makes this makes sense. Yeah. So that's why it's like everyone watching and listening to this right now, like keep that in mind as you're talking to the missionaries that when they are like, no, this is the way it is. Like they may be saying that, but what is actually going on is maybe, you know, maybe there is nothing going on, but maybe there is. And they just don't want maybe there that is. partner to know. Yeah. And so, you know, so Ryan, let me follow up on that with, yeah. because here's an idea, good idea, an interesting idea. So, so our book was written by a group of former Mormon missionaries and so each one, each one wrote a chapter. They're now all followers of Jesus. They're theologically, some of them theologically uh, educated and, and trained and so forth. But, but many of them tell stories as they're telling their story of how they went on their mission, what their mission was like. They're, they couple this powerful story element with this powerful truth element. They're saying, here's what this missionary lesson is going to cover, and here's how the Bible responds to that. 
But I would say that that um, in the majority of cases, they all remember back to an, a positive encounter they had with a Christian person, yeah. who said, "Oh, you know, somebody somebody who didn't buy it, you know, buy into their thing, and someone who had a great question who was kind to them, and they that those things stayed with them." Yeah, and that's that's hope. So the part of the book is really all about not just how to answer, uh, yeah. but also to give us hope that God's at work in the yeah. lives of these missionaries. We may never see it. But we all we know stories from here being here in Utah and being in the world that I live in, plenty of stories about guys who have come to faith in Christ after their mission, and there was an initial something that happened that got you know, kind of the kind of the rock that started the avalanche that yeah. happened on a mission. And the opposite is true. I was at BYU talking to a student who was a former missionary. Uh, we knocked on his door. He invited us in. He offered us food then said, oh, I'm goodness. I'm so sorry. I don't have any food to give you. Uh, and I, I want to give you a drink, but I don't have anything other than water. And he felt so bad. We said, no, we're fine. We're fine. We don't need food. We don't need drinks. We're, we have our own water. We're good. Um, and then halfway through the conversation, he's like, I have to give you something. And he went and he found some granola bars in the cabinet and passed us all out a granola bar. And then after we finished about an hour and a half long conversation in his living room, he said, can I please go run to like the gas station and go buy you some drinks before you leave? And I'm like, we're like, we're good. We don't need drinks. He goes, can I Venmo you money so you can go buy some drinks? And I stopped him at that point and I said, on your two-year mission, did you ever have a Christian offer you food or drinks when you knocked on their door? And his answer was never. We never mm -hmm. I never had that happen. And I think that that's, you know, and now here he's kind of going above and beyond trying to of hospitality, yeah. but I, that, that's the, that's the opportunity that we have. And so that's why like some uh, missionaries were driving by in my neighborhood and I want to be like, stop, stop. Do you want to come over for dinner? Like I read, I, you know, like, I, like, how can we come alongside and, But it broke my heart hearing the opposite side is that you have yeah. these stories where these Christians made a huge impact. And then you have stories where the Christians were all kind of rude in one sense, or at least not yeah. hospitable um, as yeah. well. Now yeah. you, you address in your chapter, um, these kind of seven kind of aspects of, um, uh, of the LDS faith that an LDS culture that are impactful for us, um, in, in understanding how to have these sort of conversations. So you kind of talk about them being family oriented or have this, you know, promotes personal achievement as a, a high priority. Um, and, uh, the ones that kind of stood out to me at least, and maybe you have a different opinion on which ones are important, but kind of that, that idea of family, uh, and being very family oriented, being that high priority, um, how should that impact the way in which we go about having conversations? Well, it, you know, I think it's first, first of all, Ryan, I think it, illustrates just the general idea that I want to take an interest in this guy, this individual as a person. Hmm. I want to strip away the stereotype that they're on some, you know, they wear the badge that says elder elder. And you know, that's such a, that's such a miss because they're younger, they're younger. They don't wear the badge that says younger. Um, but I want to treat them with some respect. I want to, I want to find out like why, what, hear their story. Why are they there? And I want to learn about their family. I want to learn about what, what they're, family of origin was like. The, I met with two LDS missionaries this summer, and one of them had a horrible family experience, which is one reason why the LDS church appealed to him. And he came to become a, a believing Mormon as a teenager and later on his mission because mm -hmm. the LDS church had been there when his family fell apart. Yeah. And so I want to hear those stories and, and connect with and relate to them. Uh, he's a He's an individual who's loved by God, you know, yeah. and and has a unique story that, and ha his story is, so I have this, I have this thing about evangelism and I, I borrowed this from somebody, I can't remember from whom, but the, they said a lot of our, a lot of our efforts at sharing the good news can be likened, likened to junk mail. Now as we just send out, here's the gospel, it's generic. It has occupant written on the envelope. You know, mm. when I, when I get an occupant letter, I just probably get throw it away. Right. When I get a letter in the mail that's hand addressed to me personally, you know, that's why the people now have machines that that hand address, you know, the occupant yeah. thing on there. But <laughs> when I when I when I know see one that's really addressed to me personally and it's hand I I really I'm eager to open that up. Right. And so this is kind of the the point is in understanding these missionaries and LDS people in general is is I want to know to get to know their spiritual address. So that I can hand write the letter to them. I'm not going to send them generic. 
I'm going to send them something that's relevant. But I can't know that unless the Holy Spirit leads me, but I can't know it unless I know them as an, as an individual somewhat. Yeah. That's so good. I think, again, that reminds me of, uh, we knocked on one door, uh, there at BYU and, uh, said, Hey, we're missionaries and we're here to have conversations. Uh, would you like to talk? And he said, sure. And we have this conversation probably 20 minutes in the conversation. He stopped us and he said, by the way, um, can I offer you a piece of advice? Uh, I think as we were parting ways and we said, yeah, sure. He goes, when you knock on someone's door, introduce yourself, say your name and ask them what their name is. It kind of builds a little bit of respect between the two before you jump into a theological debate. And it was like, Oh yeah, we didn't even ask what your name, you know, it's like those sort of things where it's like, we can be sometimes so like dead set, especially if we're a little bit nervous on like, okay, what am I supposed to say? And what were those theological points? And how do I remember these Bible verses that we often forget? Like, I just want to get to know you and understand who you are, because again, relationships are uh, important. Um, You, uh, you address another one here um, that you say Mormons are fiercely loyal to their church and its leaders. Um, How is this understanding of their culture going to impact the way in which we should have these sort of conversations? Right. I, I, I think that, okay, it's really easy to take pot shots at church LDS church leaders. Yeah. So, I mean, Joseph Smith, for example, I mean, there's plenty of, plenty of problems with Joseph Smith, false prophet, you know, you know, underage girls at polygamy, all the rest. Um, and that that's low hanging fruit in a way, but even the current leaders, um, it's easy to take pot shots at them. They're stuffy and formal and like, wait, they're a bajillion years old. And, you know, but, um, but I, so I just, I want to make sure that I don't denigrate a, an LDS leader because that's going to, that's going to spill over. Into yeah. So I'll tell you a story about that. I was at a family reunion, my family, my LDS family a few years ago, some years ago. And at that point in time, the president of the LDS church was Gordon B. Hinckley, uh, which, by the way, you know, they always have to put the middle initial in. <laughs> That's kind of a Mormon culture thing to show respect. But Gordon B. Hinckley was the president. And my wife and I were walking around the kitchen late. It was late one night in my brother's house. And there was a typical culture thing that LDS people do is they put a picture up of the of the current apostle and prophet of the president of the church in their house. And they have the maybe a couple pictures of the top three or whatever in their house, along with pictures of temples and especially the temple they're married in or whatever. So common uh, decorating. But so here's there's a picture of Gordon B. Hinckley. And we were all alone or so I thought. It was late at night. Nobody Nobody's around. And so I made a derogatory comment about Gordon B. Hinckley and called him by a, you know, by a colloquial name that he's known in and outside of the LDS world. It wasn't a dirty name or anything like that, but it was not respectful. Hmm. I didn't know about that. Two years later, my brother confronted me about it. Hmm. He, somebody heard it and it undermined my witness. It undermined hmm. my credibility. You know, so that, oh my gosh, why, you know, what? It's tempting for us outside of the Mormon culture to go, oh, take a pot shot. It's funny, ha ha. Um, But it really, because they respect and revere their leaders, I'm going to be really, really careful about what I say about Joseph Smith until I have built trust with that person. I'm not going to lead with Joseph Smith because uh, that's going to be the end of it, you know, if I do. Yeah. And I think this, this, again, this just goes to all areas of culture that we as Christians are, are called to have an impact in. I remember the story of Sean McDowell uh, sitting in a group of atheists and saying, what, what can we as Christians do better? And they said, stop the atheist jokes. And he's like, what? And it was like, he said something like within a month or, a, or the next week or something, he's sitting at church and the pastor kind of made some joke and mock, you know, towards atheists or something like that. And it was like, Okay, we we do it. Uh, I know the people who yeah. address you know issues of, of homosexuality and, and just it's like stop the the gay jokes uh, because yep. you never know who's listening and you start mocking and joking about that. You don't know what some student in the crowd is dealing with, and now all of a sudden you start joking about gender identity being a bunch of nonsense. And a student who's struggling with their gender identity is sitting there listening. You're definitely not yep. going to be the person that they're going to come to when they're willing yep. to open up and share something. And so we definitely have to think Great about point. the way in which we joke about these things specifically uh, to a culture here that has a high respect for their leaders and church leadership. Um, okay, so this is so good. Now, now 
in, in your section also in, in sharing the gospel then with LDS culture, I think you, you start off with what I said at the beginning of the show was just a kind of a big eye opener for me. And, and it says as an apologist, I want to get to the facts and I want to have theological debates and discussions. And I want to evaluate the, the truth of different ideas, because for often for evangelical Christians, truth based, which is that which is based in reality is so hugely important. And so we mm-hmm. want to kind of engage in these sort of ideas and we don't pay attention to the cultural factors that are influencing how they hear us talking about these sort of things. And it limits our witness. And so the first thing you say is to begin with, and if we want to share the gospel with LDS culture, we have to recognize that Latter-day Saints determine truth by experience. So kind of walk through us, uh, walk with us through that, and then how, again, that should influence how we share the gospel. Yeah, it's the basic question of epistemology. And I think it's it's uh, a little bit nearsighted for us to assume that everybody else has the same epistemology that we do. Right. Because our epistemology is going to drive our approach. So again, you mentioned at the beginning, you know, we have this cognitive oriented approach and um, and people go, well, how come they don't get it? It's so clear, you know, it makes so much sense. But I just, you know, I realize in cross-cultural thinking that um, the Mormonism is not just a belief system. It's an identity. So there's much, much more to it than the cognitive aspect of it. And in fact, most people who become Mormons don't become Mormons because they came they came to believe in the compelling nature of the of the uh, facts, so to speak. Right. Um, they become Mormons for relational. Well, most of them were born into it, and so. But those who convert to it come come for uh, relational reasons a, lo- a lot. They find a place like this kid I was mentioning earlier. He grew up in a broken home. He found a place that where where adult men you know cared about him. Right. And so. The epistemology question, so this is unique about Mormonism in some ways, is that they hold that the highest way to know truth is by having a personal revelatory experience from God. And so you talk about that, with, it's in the Book of Mormon, and the, last, the end of the Book of Mormon, they go, if you'll pray about these things with a sincere heart, then the Holy Spirit will, make, will, will reveal to you the truth of them. So that's the final test. And uh, I've, I've talked to lots of LDS guys that say, man, they, they, they'll come back and say, look, I don't care if you could prove to me that Joseph was a false prophet, or I don't care, prove to me that the Book of Mormon is not, not true, whatever it is. He says, I know. I have had a testimony-affirming experience, and so, you know, have at it. Yeah. So the common kind of response then, because uh, this this comes up, I mean, this is the, the probably the number one thing that we have to work with students on uh, to help them kind of walk through in the conversations because, yeah, they, they get to a door and that's often, it's my experience, my feelings tell me this. Um, and one kind of common approach is to try to discredit feelings, to show how feelings can be tricky and how, you know, Jeremiah talks about, you know, that, that our heart is deceitful and wicked above all else. Or you can point to these different aspects of not, you know, do you always trust your feelings? Have is it, your feelings ever led you astray sort of thing and trying to cast doubt on feelings. Um, do you find that to be helpful uh, in trying to cast doubt on feelings being a correct epistemology or how we know something? Or uh, is there kind of a better approach that as they are sharing this understanding of truth based on feelings, how do we come at that when their feelings contradict facts? Yeah, I think th- there is a legitimate place for calling into question the idea, the place of the role of feelings. Now, I would say, however, but by the way, this is what chapter two is all about. And so for our, for our listeners today, uh, chapter two deals with uh, a huge, it's a really important right. chapter, really well done by Corey Miller, yep. uh, that talks about the personal experience as the ultimate authority, among other authorities that Mormons have. They do have, a, they do have other levels of authority, so it's not just personal experience, but personal experience is the trump. Yeah. And so he does have a lot of uh, good questions about that. And yeah, he does he does call into question and 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 then it it's reasonable to have some reasons to call into question the nature of that experience. And what Corey does is he puts it into the the uh context of Mormonism. There's all these splinter groups for Mormonism, right? You know, there's hundreds of different groups that have broken off from the, the you know the the community of Christ and the Bickertonites and the right. and the uh, fundamentalists and all the rest. I said, put them in the room, and and each one of them is going to have a testimony, right? Bearing witness to the Book of Mormon. The Book of Mormon is true, etc. Bearing witness to their experience. Well, 
then, then Corey says, okay, how do you find out which one of them is telling the truth? And so he'll, he'll explore in this chapter how different people can have opposing testimonies and how do you test the truth of one versus another? Right. How do you find out what one versus another is? And then he goes back to Scripture in 1 John chapter 5, where it talks about the testimony that God has given us, which is which does comport with truth. You know, it's, it's, it's a double testimony as well. So I think it's fair to talk about uh, with, with LDS people about, you know, why you believe your testimony and um, and together with under with uh, the questions that um, would cause a someone to doubt the, the validity of their testimony that's fair to do that uh, but I want to understand that ultimately um, I, I I want to share my story yeah. and my testimony and share my story of how yes God has you know the Christian life is not just about uh, it's not it's not devoid of experiential evidence yes. I think all of us would say that we have times when God spoke to us whatever that means for you, you know, where, where the, I was reading the word and man, it came alive to me in a, in a, in an experiential way. Yeah. It's not my final de- evidence, but it could be supportive evidence and leading from God. So I don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater. I want to yeah. find out what's the proper place of, of testimonial experience. Um, you know, w- along with other ways that God reveals himself more primary ways, in fact. Yeah. So you talk about, I love it here. You know, if you're, debating the the doctrine of the Trinity, that's good, but not to leave the conversation just at the level of competing ideas, but you want to communicate the emotional impact of that truth in your experience and explain what you think of a God who is so far above our comprehension and a deep sense of awe that you have and moving towards humility of the profound worship of this infinite being and sharing that. So what if someone pushes back and says, okay, so you share your experience of how your view of the Trinity has led you to this deep awe and worship of God. And then they have their experience of how their view of God not being Trinity uh, has led to them really loving God. And so now you just have these competing experiences but you haven't progressed the conversation. Uh, is that like a, we should, shouldn't we be trying to progress the conversation just rather than saying, Hey, we both have our experience. That's nice. And we go our separate ways. Yeah, no. In fact, if, if they come to that place where they recognize some validity of my experience, that's a good thing hmm. because then we are, then, then what's, what's next in the conversation is how do we tell the difference between experience A and experience B? Yeah. What do we use to test those experiences? And I say, well, I'm going to test mine against the word of God. God has already spoken and he's made it clear. There's certain things that, that make sense in terms of God's revelation. How are you going to test your experience? And so, so that, that, that actually leads us into really the deeper, the next question that arises out of that conversation. Absolutely. That is so good. Now, the next thing you talk about here is not only understanding uh, their kind of epistemology or how we know what we know, but you talk about Latter-day Saints have a very, are very sensitive to perceived persecution. Uh, kind of w- w- walk us through this one and how it impacts us. Right. So the LDS church, the LDS people were persecuted. So that that's a historical reality. Um, they were driven out of Ohio, they were driven out of Missouri. Now, there were some reasons, maybe that there were some um, ways that the church would prove to become odious to the people around them, but there was also a great deal of, of prejudice re- re- with respect to that. Um, and so they, they had this experience of persecution, and it can be documented. Um, they, did, they turned it around, and they, they returned some, for sure, but that's not the point. The point is so that because this this persecution experience, the LDS people will will ra- will real will uh, reason that oh look, in the first century church or in the in the New Testament, the Christians were persecuted, so we were persecuted, and so click you know oh that they must be like us we we're like them, but the thing that the church has done the culture of Mormonism has done over the years since that persecution is that they have. Put a put a lens on it. They have they have sought to create um, a validation for themselves because of it. They've said this is an important part of our cultural identity as a people um, that we are the the product of persecution. And so, in other words, it's not going to just be forgotten. It's going right. to be cultivated and stirred up, and you know the flames will be will be fanned a little bit. So, what that means is that 
now there's a related idea in the Book of Mormon. It says uh, that contention is of the devil. And so, so they have a filter and their filter is going to maybe preclude them from being able to have a super forthright conversation right away until there's trust that's built up. And so if they feel like I'm coming on too strong or they feel like I just want to um, destroy the church, which is the common term they often use, you're just out to destroy the church. Then, then they'll just back off and the conversation is over. So I haven't, I haven't won the right to continue the conversation because I've come on too strong. Yeah. Yeah. So again, just kind of, as you see here, you know, just that having in the back of our mind, this idea should help us kind of emphasize this idea of treating them with kindness and generosity uh, in our engagement. Now, uh, the next point I think is just so fascinating. And I think I've heard numbers behind this, but you, you talk about, again, what we talked about at the beginning, that there's this cr- close knit sense of community. And so what this idea then does for you, it says, when talking to Mormons about Jesus, I'm always aware of the difficult challenge they will encounter if they leave their community and faith behind and adopt a biblical faith. And I think, you know, I've, I've heard stats say something like it takes the average Mormon something like seven years uh, to, to kind of walk away because of just that pre- pressure and, and, the, and, and what it will mean for them to actually walk away. And so I'm kind of curious with that in mind, what would you say to someone who says something like, you know, Ross, I, I invited the missionaries over to my house. We met twice. They're not going to change their mind. Uh, I'm not going to change my mind. Um, I just, I don't, I don't think it's fruitful. I don't think it's worth it. Um, what would you kind of say to that approach? And, and maybe an encouragement with this idea that like, no, it's just, it's hard for them to leave. Well, how would you respond to that? It could be worth it could be. You just don't know if it's going to be worth it or not. So part of it is this, that it's the timeline of conversion is long for Latter-day Saints. There's not going to be any like just add water and boom, instant, you know, or just try this trick or this technique or whatever for sharing your faith. Um, and there's lots of them out there, you know, that no, the timeline of conversion is long. So I yeah. need to be prepared spiritually and emotionally to make a commitment to that person as long as they're willing to have, as long as they're willing to have me committed to them. So I got a great example of this. I've got a friend out here. um, She's in Utah now, but she grew, uh, she lived for years in the Nashville, Tennessee area. And she took it upon, she'd never been Mormon, but she took it upon herself to say, to really welcome these, they'd send girl lady sister missionaries, they call them young women, and she made a friend. Uh, she made a point to befriend them and to, and to build relationship with them. And so when they leave, when they left Nashville, they'd stay in touch with her. Hmm. And now, some years later, she so she moved to Utah to continue cultivating those kind of relationships and having that kind of influence. Uh, just last year, there was a, a young missionary who was in in her home in Nashville seven years ago, and she she calls my friend and says, "You know what?" Um, I'm in Utah now. Can can we go to church? Can you take me to your church? Or mm. do you know a church up here where I live? They're 50 miles apart. Um, and so I'm going, wow, you know, there's how many stories are there? I don't know that where that doesn't ever happen. But, you know, the story of the one, Jesus Jesus puts emphasis on the one, you know, yeah. the one the one sheep. We're going to go out for it. Um, so there is there is encouragement along the way that, um, that God can really work and is working in the lives of these young people. Yeah. No, that's, it's such an encouragement. Again, I think it's just so important because it can be easy for us to, to kind of come to quick judgments based on what we see externally happening or not happening and trying to determine whether this is worth our time or not. And I think it's just so important that we recognize in kind of our evangelistic conversations, evangelism and sharing the gospel is always worth our time. Um, and, and we never know what the Holy Spirit is doing in them at that moment. And they can't share it because of their partner who maybe is with them or what the Holy Spirit may do uh, future down the line when all of a sudden, you know, they, they have this openness and willing to kind of uh, explore those ideas. Um, mm-hmm. and, I, and I've heard that too, of like, there's maybe not as much freedom while on their mission to the, explore these ideas, but then often when they get home from their mission and now they're kind of a little bit more yeah. free, they kind of start sometimes in that exploration a little bit more. Yeah. <laughs> now, um, you you mentioned here something, the last thing I want to address, I think from your chapter that I thought was very interesting is you talk about how Christian churches have often have statements of faith where we really spell out our beliefs in this orderly, structured way versus Mormons often structure 
their beliefs in terms of stories. And so if we're going to kind of understand them seeing things in a story form, how that then should influence us when we're having these conversations. So how does them seeing things in story form, um, how can we use that to, to have better conversations? Yeah. So it's, it's a, a good point to try to just understand that Mormon church does not have a formal statement of faith. And most of our churches do. Um, not every church does, but most of our churches do. And it's a good thing, I think, to help people understand what this church stands for and, yeah. and you know what it understands biblically. But Mormon church doesn't have anything like that. They're not, um, it's not a church based on orthodoxy. It's a church of orthopraxy. Hmm. In other words, it doesn't really matter what you believe as long as you're active and loyal and involved. Now, you, there's certain limits to that. You can't start promulgating a message that's undermining, you know, the Mormon message. And you'll, right. you'd be disciplined if you did that. But privately, they don't really care what you believe hmm. as long as you're active and you're involved in serving and giving and all the rest. So, and so um, the, the stories that Mormonism tells that capture their theology, for example, their theology of God is captured in the story of the first vision where Joseph Smith talks about how he went to this grove. He had an encounter with, with the father and the son. And, and the nature of that encounter then reveals that God is an embodied human and these separate, a separate person, a being from the son. Yeah. And, um, and so all of that. And so they don't have to be taught that in a catechetical way. They just have to retell that story. And they all really understand who God is from their perspective. The story of, uh, the Book of Mormon, the story of the restoration of original Christianity, um, which they would look at. That's their, that's their terms for it. But the story of how, you know, Jesus church apostatized, was lost from the face of the earth. After all these years, God caused Joseph Smith to restore the original church of Jesus. That whole story has tons of theological impact about the nature of truth and the nature of ecclesiology and all the rest. So, that's the thing. So I want to understand that a little bit. And so first of all, I'm going to, I want to understand how to tell God's story. I want to how to tell the gospel in story form. Cause I mean, the Bible after all is a story. It's not a systematic theology handbook. Um, so I'm going to, I want to try to tell the story and so this is framed in different ways, but often it's framed in terms of creation, fall, covenant, redemption, and consummation. Or pick, you know, four out of those five or whatever, but and add a couple more. But but to so the idea of this is God's movement in history. And that resonates more with the person, Ilias person who's who's seen who thinks they've seen God move in history, you know, in different ways. And yeah. then also I wanna tell not only God's story, but I wanna be able to tell my story, to tell how God has worked and interacted with me in my life and um and how that has how I've come to understand truth through the story of his working and how my story fits into God's story. Yeah. Yeah. And then I think it's also important as you say here, because I think often we have those conversations, we, we want to focus on those theological differences and having a lot of those conversations. And so the first point you bring out here is open the Bible with your LDS friend and read stories from Jesus's life, exploring the implications of what Jesus said and how he acted. And I think, you know, I've never done that. I've spent a lot of time talking with LDS believers and I've never just opened up the Bible and read a story of Jesus and then talked about the implications of it. And, um, and so, you know, again, my focus, this is why I said this, this chapter kind of hit me so hard. It's like, yeah, I've, as an apologist and theologian, it's like, yeah, let's, let's focus on all the theological and apologetic Mm -hmm. arguments and try to look at evidence to show that, that this doesn't fit um, and that you should be persuaded by evidence because that's how people should believe is believe that, which is true. It's like, what about just opening the Bible and reading a story with Jesus, but then also having an understanding of the truth of that story, the reason why that is trustworthy. And there are those apologetic things that kind of provide that foundation that are so huge. Absolutely. Now I will add to kind of what you say and just kind of agree with you is that, is that this last year with Maven, we implemented a new kind of gospel presentation training where we, we realized that with a lot of Christian students, we were taking, we would say, okay, summarize the gospel in, in two sentences, uh, they often couldn't do it. Um, mm-hmm. And it's like sometimes even Christian students have have heard it so many times that we kind of ignore it, but then we don't realize we haven't internalized it. And so the way that we approach it, rather than like memorizing, you know, these five points, um, we said, we want you to understand 
the gospel in light of God's story. And so we teach it creation, fall, redemption, restoration. And we say, okay, what does creation have to say? What does the fall have to say? And we make them do their own Bible study to figure out the Bible verses that support this and then write it in their own words. And we found the advantage is it not only does put it kind of in that story form, but allowing the student to kind of put the gospel in their own words following the pattern of creation, fall, redemption, restoration, uh, allows them to remember it a lot better than just something they memorized. And then because they've looked up the Bible verses for it, when someone says, okay, well, you said this thing about uh, humans are fallen, where do you get that idea? They then should be able to go back to scripture to support right. how they got that idea in, in their thing. And right. so what we found is not only has it been effective in, in, in sharing, but then after our trips, when we ask our students, what is the gospel? Um, they overwhelmingly now the majority have a very strong, solid understanding of the gospel in light of God's big story. And so it has been really right. cool uh, to see how our gospel presentation training has kind of made that impact uh, that you talk about there. Um, yeah. So great stuff. So, okay. So we have about 10 minutes left. Um, so I, I wanted to kind of get to this as well, but I thought that, again, I think that the, the perspective that you bought in your chapter uh, just really opened my eyes and why I want to spend a lot of time there talking about kind of cultural differences and try to help us better balance and manage these conversations. But what about then when they kind of show up at the door? So kind of what are some some practical things? What have you found to be helpful? And, and, and what is, you know, when, when the Mormon is coming to the door, are they trying to persuade you as a Christian? Um, are they trying to convince you? Um, how how should we respond? What What is maybe their goal and some practical, yeah. helpful ways yeah, to respond? They're, yeah, they are trying, they're definitely trying to convince you. They would love to convert you to their to your church. So the the Mormons, so when we wrote the book, we wanted to say, well, let's think about how the, how this happens, what their manual is. So we picked out, they have a manual that they've been using for 20 plus years called Preach My Gospel. And in the in it has what their basic message is, each five lessons, that's going to be four um, next year, but five lessons, they combined a couple. Um, but also it's going to give them tips that, that gives the missionaries like marginal tips to tell you, oh, when they ask this, you know, do this, or you might want to ask them this, or you might want to challenge them to this certain thing. So it's an instruction manual. So we said, let's take that. Let's take former mission, more missionaries who've used that. Let's take that. And we know that it's going to give the missionary the script when they come to your door, they're following this particular script. They're going to follow it their own way. They're going to, you know, emphasize different things, but we kind of know where they're going. And so we said this book in our book, we're going to we're going to make sure that you understand where they're coming from, what the biblical answer for those things is. So, yeah, they're going to try to they're going to try to convert you uh, to the LDS church. And I, I know that growing in when they came to my door, um, I said, OK, well, let's, let's let's see. Let me try what I've been talking about, you know. And so I just wanted to I know what I know that I'm going to accept certain assignments from them and not accept other ones. They wanted me to read the whole Book of Mormon. I said, well, I've read the whole Book of Mormon. Would you read it again? I said, no, I don't have time for that. It's not worth it. And you know, so I said, but I said, they said, well, will you read segments from the Book of Mormon each week? I said, yeah, if it's not a long segment, I'll read your segment and we'll talk about it. I thought that gives me something that I know they want to talk about. And so I've accepted that those things. I asked them their story, get to know them personally, invite them in, be hospitable like we've talked about. Um, but I know that, that this is their point of view. So what's my what do I tell them is my point of view? Well, I didn't I didn't say I want to convert you out of Mormonism. I said I grew up LDS, and I want to understand what whether the church has changed much. I want to understand whether the message that you have, how much it's like the message I had when I was growing up. Or you know if you never were LDS, then you say yeah I'm just curious about. I know you guys are uh, growing all over the world, and I've seen you guys out there. I'm curious what you have to say for yourselves. And so, you know, that's not a, that's not fake. I'm not lying about that. It's honest. It may not tell them everything I want them to understand, but I want to share my story with them over the course of some conversations. Now, how much do you, um, let them know about what you know. Uh, so for example, this often happens with us, but I, I remember when I first had some missionaries coming over, um, I was asking a lot of questions and kind of playing dumb. Like I hadn't studied this stuff to where my brand new roommate at the time was like, this guy doesn't know anything, you know, and not knowing that I knew a whole bunch and I was just playing dumb. And I realized that's not a helpful strategy because then the moment you start saying, well, what about Joseph Smith when he said this? And what about this verse that says this? It's like, oh, you do know your stuff. And so I've found to be more helpful to say like, look, I've 
studied this for years and I've read portions and, and try to kind of be upfront. Um, have you found that to, to be the better option yeah. is to just be upfront and yeah. honest with what you've known and what you study and, and, and not try to hide anything from them? Yeah, totally. So, you know, they knew I had been former Mormon, but I would say, even if I wasn't, I would say, look, I've studied this a lot, but I know that, you know, you're going to have a different perspective on it. So let's compare notes. I want to hear your perspective. And if, if you're interested in hearing my perspective, yeah. you know, let's just, uh, let's just see where it lands. Yeah. So I think that's helpful to kind of say like, Hey, I'm curious kind of what you think on this versus like, yeah. what, what does the church teach about that? Like, like we're, like yeah. we're clueless and, and have yeah. no idea. Now I'm also kind of curious because when I first started, um, I went onto their website and said, Hey, will you send some missionaries to my house? Because I, I did want to kind of practice having these sort of conversations. However, now after doing this for many years and now training students to, to have these conversations, I, I, I found myself in a weird situation where I live in a neighborhood where they almost never come. I've only seen them once in two years and they were driving by really fastly. Um, and so I wish that they would come knock on my door, but they don't. But I also kind of feel bad going on their website, requesting missionaries, knowing that, I just want them to come over so I can maybe have these sort of conversations, but Hey, if it's, I want to get to know them, maybe that's a better uh, motivation to do that. Would you suggest that maybe if Christians want to do this, to go on their website and request missionaries to come over, or do yeah. you just wait for them to come to your door? Or how would you go about encourage if people want to get into these conversations, what should they do? Yeah, I think, I think that's still valid to do Ryan, because so here's how it works is the Mormon missionaries, their system has always been built on uh, referrals from members. But the referrals from members have been dropping over the years. They have less members who want to own that or maybe who want to you know, get others to come. So the, the, the missionaries often, they're looking, for, they're looking for work. They're looking for opportunities. They want to have conversation with somebody. Now, a lot of the, in places where there's a lot of Latter-day Saints, um, I think this might be true in Southern California too because of the, but it's certainly true in Utah. Um, a lot of the missionary work is reactivating lapsed members. But so they would love, honestly, that's what they're trained to do. They would love to have a conversation with somebody who's not one of them or who's not, you're not trying to, you know, scold them back into activity or whatever. So I think, and, and they're just not going to, you know, you know how our culture says anymore, people don't knock on doors and answer doors. That's, that's, that's an old school approach. That's why a lot of more missionaries are now involved in social media. That's mm -hmm. another way to engage them um, in social media. So I'd say, yeah. Don't, don't rely on the old ways of doing it. If you ask for them, they will come. Okay. Yeah. I called up the local uh, ward and said, Hey, uh, would you missionaries be interested in zooming into my high school class and answering questions on the LDS faith? And, and they were more than happy to do it. it came two days in a row. And so uh, there's definitely those opportunities there. Now, now, as we kind of finish up, I, I'm just kind of curious of, of what have you found to be, you, you shared your story a little bit and kind of, you know, exposing some of these things about the LDS church kind of was a big shaker in your, uh, in your belief system. And, and do you really believe it as much as you do, but are there kind of some, some big factors that you have found to be really important to bring up. I know sometimes uh, the pressure of kind of this impossible gospel is one. Uh, have you found that to be effective or are there other kind of topics that you found to be extra helpful to kind of have a conversation about? Yeah, the impossible gospel it is a positive way in a, in a sense because Okay, Latter-day Saints are not interested in talking about, typically, all the things that Christians are more interested in. They don't really want to talk about the nature of deity. Hmm. And so theology proper, it's not that interesting to them. Where, where the real gold mine is, is talking about the heaviness, the burden of expectation of a worthiness, a perfectionistic culture. That So Mormons don't know, am, am, am I doing enough? Mm -hmm. Am I going to be able to have eternal life? Am I going to be able to make it, you know, into the celestial kingdom, whatever? And so I want to talk about those questions. I want to talk about the, the grace, the gospel. And, and that's where the impossible gospel comes into play is that, yeah, there's a sense in which I'm going like, oh, you know, maybe I'm, maybe I'm not uh, living up. It, it, it touches a nerve for a minute. Now, a lot of Mormons think they are living up or a lot of Mormons can just separate it in their head with cognitive dissonance. But a lot of them are going like, man, I don't have any confidence of where I stand with God. And yeah. I think that's the maybe the most fruitful place to begin. 
Yeah. Awesome. Wow. And hey, if, if anyone listening there is like, wait, what is the impossible gospel? I want more there. Uh, a good friend of uh, Dr. Anderson, uh, Lauren Pankratz, uh, came on the show a little while ago and did we did a whole show uh, on the kind of impossible gospel and the different views of, of Mormon and Christian views of grace. So I'll have it pop up over in the corner uh, here after we get done here uh, if you want to go check that out as well. So as we kind of finish up then, um, kind of I'd love to, you know, it, it, here's the book and I'll show that again in a little bit. Um, are there other resources, other ministries you're involved in a lot? Kind of where else can kind of people go, or maybe if they're talking to someone in Utah, some some places that they can reach out to to find a church or more work that you guys are doing. Well, one of the things we do a lot of is helping people after they leave Mormonism to find a home in a local church or to find a, a relationship with Jesus. So that's we call that. We have a website called faithaftermormonism.org. And then um, I love the work that's been done by a group in Idaho and Boise called Truth in Love Ministries, T-I-L-M.org. And they have a lot of really helpful tools on sharing your faith with Latter-day Saints. Yep. I know people that love uh, Truth and Love Ministries as well. So, uh, wow. Well, thank you again, Ross. Thank you for coming on, having this conversation and kind of helping even change my perspective and my thoughts as I go into approaching these conversations. Great. Thanks for having me. All right, everybody, there again is that book, Responding to the Mormon Missionary Message by Corey Miller and Ross Anderson. You can check that out. I do want to take this time again to remind you as we approach the end of the year that we're in the middle of our end of the year giving challenge. This is a, just an important time for nonprofit organizations and fundraising, and a group of very generous monthly supporters have given above and beyond their normal gift to challenge you all to contribute uh, to the total of $13,230 that they'll match. Every donation, dollar for dollar, up to that amount. So if you give from between now and the end of the year, your gift will be doubled. More information can be found if you're listening on YouTube at the bottom, or you can go to think-well.org for more information on that. Uh, there's always, again, a ton of other videos that are going to be popping up over here because my goal is to continue to train you in a lot of different issues and areas to understand cultural issues and engage the culture well. And again, on Friday, if you see this before then, Friday, I'm going to be releasing my doctoral research paper on a theology of the body and transgenderism that will hopefully be a helpful resource to help you answer questions and engage with this topic in a theological perspective. So you just have to sign up for the ThinkWell email list and I'll get that sent your way. If you see this afterwards, message me and I'll get it sent to you as well. So with that, I hope that you have a wonderful rest of your day. Interview next week with Dr. Greg Gansel on the argument for desire, how Christianity satisfies our deepest desires. And then we're coming up on the end of the year. So I hope that you have a wonderful time leading up to Christmas, a great holiday season, and I will see you next week for another conversation. Have a good rest of your day, everybody, and continue to think deeply about God, Christianity, and Jesus, because they are worth thinking about. See you next time. Just you